0: Don't
1: Shoot the Deputies. Hello, and welcome to Don't Shoot the Deputies, a podcast run by two deputy heads living on opposite sides of the country. Hello, Steve. Great to be chatting again after a brief break during what has been a very busy term.
2: Hi, Russell, and welcome to all our listeners. Yes, it's great to be back, Russell, and what a cracking guest we have with us
1: today. Absolutely. We're joined today by Andrew Percival. To give you some background, I met Andrew a couple of years ago when he was touring the country with Claire Seeley, delivering the most incredible conference about a curriculum designed for long-term learning. It was one of those kind of mind-altering experiences that supercharged my own curriculum journey and gave us the direction we needed in order to begin our work on curriculum. Since then, we've had Claire on the podcast twice, but I'm so pleased, Andrew, to be talking with you today. A very warm welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you. It's brilliant to be here. Thank you, Andrew. And it's great to talk to myself today because Russell has talked about this conference so much for the last two years. Now, our listeners should know that you are deputy head working in Oldham. But can you tell us a bit more about your background, what it's like being a deputy head teacher and where your interest in the curriculum came from? Okay, so about twenty years ago, I uh, finished
0: my PGCE and started teaching. And then, in my third year, I was asked to apply for um, an advanced skills teacher role in the school, which I did and I got. And that was some really interesting work. Then, I was starting to get a bit itchy feet and wanted to move on. So. moved to the school where I'm at now, which is uh, Stanley Road Primary in Oldham. And I always say that I moved from being an advanced skills teacher to uh, an AST to a BST, which is a bog standard teacher, because um, <laughs> basically at the, f- at the first school where I'd started, the behaviour was sorted and it meant that I could just go into that classroom and, and with normal behaviour management strategies could teach the curriculum. But the school I'd moved to had not got behaviour sorted. And it, everything that I had been used to doing, the sorts of activities that we uh, that I would have done, the way that I taught, just didn't work. And it was purely down to the fact that the the behaviour wasn't sorted in that school. So that made things very difficult. So I I felt like I was failing those children at that point. Uh, I now realise it wasn't me particularly who was who was failing them. Now. Over time, behaviour improved and a change of leadership. And now things are on a much more even footing. And really, in the last seven or eight years, we've managed to make huge improvements in what we do in school. The reason I'm mentioning that is that because this was like a real sort of foundational experience for me, that the understanding, and it was really stark, that if you haven't got behaviour right in the school, you've got nothing. It doesn't matter what you do with teaching or curriculum, it's not going to make it the difference. So that was a really important lesson for me. Now, things are moving really well at our school. I'm now deputy head teacher and I've got a particular focus on curriculum. That's my big project, really, over the last four or five years, and looking at the implications of research and what that means for, for schools. In terms of, sort of where my interest in curriculum came from, I always try, sort of trace it back to about five years ago, and it was the end of the year in 2016. And a few things were happening around that time that really kick-started my thoughts about curriculum. So the first one was that we did our usual round of pupil voice activity in school, and we got some groups of children, and we asked them what they um, had been learning that year, what, what what the teachers had been teaching them, and so on. And we had a group of children who we were talking about history with, and the first thing that they said was, they looked a bit nonplussed because they weren't sure what history was because we taught topic. We didn't actually teach history, you know, or that certainly that's what how it was perceived by the children. But then when we actually got into the bit about what they'd been learning, they could remember the kind of one-off lessons, the food tasting lesson or the we made a Roman shield lesson or we had a visitor in, those, those things. They remembered those experiences. But when we asked them, you know, well, you know, you made a Roman shield, but, you know, can you remember anything about, you know, why did the Romans invade or any, any of that stuff? They, they just didn't really have anything at all um, to say about it. Now, that wasn't a revelatory experience at that point because that was just what had always happened. That's, that was just normal. Then around that time, well, actually, it was May 2016 precisely because I can remember it because I'm still scarred for life by this experience. <laughs> uh, we had that reading paper in Key Stage 2, the end of year sat, where we had the dodo, and the wild ride with Martin on the back of the giraffe oh, yeah. and the lost queen, I think it was called, the, the first piece. And I, I can remember that paper so vividly because at my school, we'd spent a lot of time trying to improve our end of key stage two reading scores. And we'd gone from being one of the lowest in the local authority to sort of just about getting up towards, you know, uh, av- average or our typical attainment. But then that paper came and totally wiped us out. And we were back down at sort of 40-odd percent again. And we had a meeting that afternoon When on the day of that paper, and I really remember this well, that we, we sat around the senior leaders and said, that paper was so tough. What on earth are we going to do about it? Because we've just spent the last five years trying to get up to a you know, reasonable standard with our, with our English scores. So we sort of toyed with ideas like, should we just do more comprehension? If we did an hour of comprehension every day in year five and six perhaps, we'll sort of brute force it. We'll, we'll, we'll manage to get our scores up because if we just practice doing papers over and over and over. Surely that's going to help. But, you know, we weren't daft. We knew that probably wasn't actually the solution. We didn't really want to work in a school where that was the solution either. Mm -hmm. So when we looked at the paper, we said, well, what is it about this? That's so difficult. Obviously the texts were challenging that the, the vocabulary, the the grammar, the sentence structures were, were difficult. So, we knew we needed to up our game with our English curriculum and, and make sure we read more challenging texts. But we also looked at the content and said, well, this paper about a dodo, our children don't know what dodos are. Why, why haven't we taught this? There's lots of um, concepts in this piece about um, habitats and extinction and they're science things that we should really have been doing a good job of teaching. And our children were were lost when they were presented with this. The first piece had questions about what the word ancestors meant and and what a monument was. And and all this stuff was, we realised this this was curriculum stuff. This was foundation subjects. And if we just emphasised that more and taught that better, then actually we would have resolved a lot of the issues around that paper. So that was a real sort of catalyst. But then also really just the third thing was that... At that time, I was spending far too much time on Twitter, which still do, and sorry (laughs) about that. But uh, it meant that I was hearing from all these people who were thinking about curriculum in different ways that I'd never considered before. And in particularly secondary schools and subject experts talking about what they thought a good curriculum was. And it's a real challenge for primary schools to, to have that level of expertise. So hearing about it on Twitter was a real eye-opener. And it really sort of began to make me put things together, and these sort of jigsaw pieces together, and realised it came back to curriculum. If you don't mind, I'll just talk about one blog post for a moment that really uh, resonated. And I'll bring this up because, as well, it was one that Claire Seeley and I both chatted about at the time, and it had a real sort of uh, impact on us. And it was a blog by the head teacher at the time of Bedford Free School, Stuart Locke, and it was called Pedagogy is Overrated. I mean, that's a cracking title for a blog and that, that you know, for, for someone who'd spent, you know, X amount of years believing that if we just got the teaching bit right, everything would fall into place. You know, we could improve behavior through teaching. And, you know, it didn't really matter what we taught. It was if we taught in a way that was engaging, that would be the thing that made the difference. And this blog basically blew that out of the water and said, actually, we spent too long thinking about this. And we don't spend enough time thinking about what we're actually going to teach. And then, of course, around a similar time, Amanda Spielman gave her substance of education speech and all of this stuff knitted together and really made me see that if we don't get curriculum sorted, we're not going to achieve anything further.
1: Brilliant. So how did that then, Andrew, lead to you and Claire connecting and, and running a conference? I've been meaning to ask you that for ages.
0: Yeah, so we've been chatting on Twitter for a while and we were both writing blogs Claire's obviously much better than mine, but you know, we were both having a go at it. And it meant that we were getting asked to do speak at different events. And we, we chatted about this and what it was like to do that. And one of us, I don't remember who, just said, well, it'd be really good if we just did something ourselves. And instead of being asked to do something, why don't we just be proactive and put together something on curriculum? Because we've been working on that. And that was, that was obviously taking up a lot of our uh, thinking time. And said, so, well, maybe, maybe we could share some of this stuff with other people. So I said, well, all right, well, we'll do we'll do something in Manchester. We'll do something in London, like the home gigs for us both. I booked this room in a hotel and I, I had no idea how many places to book or anything like that. I was you know, a complete novice. So I just plucked the number out of the air and said, well, we'll have a room for 80 people. Uh, and I thought this was a bit ambitious. I had a plan of how I was going to contact all the heads in all the local authorities. I was going to try and track down their email addresses and send them things. And <laughs> I had this big plan of how I was going to advertise this and try and fill this room. And I put it on Twitter. And within about two days, all the places had gone. We had a, a waiting list of 20 or so people. And you know we thought, oh, okay, right, people are actually interested in this stuff. So same thing happened with London. And then we put the event on that you went to in Exeter, Birmingham. We did another event in, in Oldham. And, and all of them, you know, we, we sold all the tickets for those. And, and we both look back on it really fondly. I've spoken to Claire about this recently. And we have sort of said that we'd like to do something, again, similar if uh, if the opportunity arose. But it was great for us to develop our thinking about curriculum to really sort of think, you know, set out what do we need to talk about for people to understand this journey You know, we were still early on in that journey. And and I would actually still say we're we're early on now, even five years into it. But the people who came to those conferences, I'm not trying to flatter you, Russell, here, but but obviously these were people who were very switched on and were really ready to to hear those messages. And I know I'm in touch with lots of those people still who tell me all about their curriculum journey that they've been on. And I know that there's still a long way to go with curriculum as a sector. But those people uh, I know are doing great work.
1: It really did, as I said at the start, supercharge my own journey. And and I think you and Claire need to be reminded regularly by other people, just the impact that will will be having for many, many children for a very long time. So, yeah, great job. Thank you.
2: Absolutely. And something that's progressing as we go on this journey, and it's been talked about in the past year or two, is memory and cognitive science. Why do you think, Andrew, that long-term learning is such a central feature of your work in the curriculum?
0: Well, like I described before, that the way that we taught meant that children didn't actually remember the content of the curriculum. And, and I'll, I might as well paraphrase one of the greats, Claire Seeley, here and say that, you know, I remember in one of her blog posts, she says that you can have the, the most well thought out, brilliant, amazing, I'm paraphrasing, <laughs> amazing curriculum in the world. But if children don't remember it, well, what was the point of all of that? And um, The way that we taught meant that that was what was happening. Our children didn't remember stuff. It wasn't that we were teaching bad content or anything like that, but it was just not joined up. So what we were doing was saying to teachers, here's a topic heading, you know, let's do a topic on volcanoes. Here's some generic skills that uh, you should try and like weave into your teaching. But basically, there you go. You get on, teach something volcano-y. You've got six weeks. And so teachers would you know, typically have a trawl through the internet and find six lessons or so on volcanoes. And they would be random lessons disconnected. They might involve some sort of art and craft activities and and, and so on. And there was no link between them. So they were all one-off lessons. There was no coherence between them, but also crucially, there was no coherence across the entire curriculum. So this volcanoes unit was completely discreet and separate from anything else anyone would have done. And each lesson within that was completely separate as well. So even though we, we still taught them knowledge about volcanoes, they had no chance of remembering it because we never came back to it. We hadn't factored in that we needed to keep revisiting this content over time and not just within that six-week block where we might be teaching that, but over years of the children being in school. And that lack of coherence meant that that it led to that situation where children were not remembering the content. They were um, just kind of like floating through this curriculum, having these experiences, being taught these lessons, but almost like instantly forgetting it.
1: Before I move on to my next question, just, just elaborating on that a little bit more, clearly for you, Andrew, there was research or reading that informed this understanding of memory and forgetting, I assume, a bit of Ebbinghaus and a few other lovely things uh, like that. One thing that worries me a bit now, we were talking about it just before we we hit record, which is that a lot of schools, sadly, are in a bit of a rush with their curriculum. They're they're, they're a little bit behind with the development of it, and they're hearing from people like local authority advisors or whoever else that memory is important, but perhaps they've not actually had the time to engage with the research. Is there a risk there that then you get a lot of surface um, activity around kind of memory and retrieval rather than really? getting the why behind it? I and mean, it's a fairly leading question, but I'll be interested in the thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, so,
0: so obviously you're right. I mean, that's always a risk with, with anything. One of the mistakes that, um, we certainly made early on and and I know that other schools have made this mistake is about jumping onto things like say knowledge organizers mm. as as a quick shortcut to sorting your curriculum out because you know if we if we can produce an A4 page of facts and children can go off and learn it then they've remembered it I mean, we could test them on it uh, and happy days but one of the first things I did hearing about schools like Michaela was I said right just whatever you're teaching at the minute go off and make us a knowledge organiser, put some of the facts on it that you'll be teaching and we'll, we'll get children to learn those. But... This is I'll paraphrase uh, Dylan William now on this one because I think this is is a brilliant quote. So he says that a collection of resources is no more a curriculum than a pile of bricks is a house Mm. Um, and I think that was the situation with knowledge organisers for us. We'd thrown knowledge organisers at this curriculum problem we hadn't done any curriculum thinking. Mm. (laughs) We hadn't thought about what we were actually going to include in the curriculum and the sequencing of it and so on. But we knew that we wanted children to remember stuff and this seemed like a really quick way of doing that. Mm. And so obviously we've had to go back and kind of undo that. And as we develop the curriculum, we've now been able to develop more effective knowledge organisers, which I'm a big fan of and think they have a brilliant place in the curriculum, but it's it's not a replacement for a curriculum. It's just a tool that you might use. So there is that risk that we can jump onto these bandwagons or, or these quick ideas that mean children might remember some stuff. But actually, we need to think really deeply, what is it they're remembering? What's really important that they're remembering? What's going to make a difference? And, you know, how are we going to do this in a way over time, that means children really remember it and don't just remember it for that six week block. And, you know, we can hammer lots of quizzes and so on in that very short time. But will they remember it, say, a year later? Or what What is it they'll remember?
1: That's a really helpful reflection. I think something that people find really useful if they're at that very early point of of developing a curriculum that does focus more on memory, Uh, which leads us really nicely into this idea of knowledge and why it's important for children to be Knowledgeable, And that was probably the biggest thing I thought about on that day when I listened to, to you and Claire speak. Um, and I know that uh, Claire and Daisy Christouli spoke about this a bit in the Knowledge is Power episode that we've done. But I am really curious about why you're also so passionate about a knowledge-rich curriculum. And within that, and I think it links to your previous answer in a way, really, if you can kind of debunk this idea that a knowledge-rich curriculum is all about what I think some people sadly sort of perceive it as, which is this kind of dull, closed lessons, children being passive. It, it can be further from the truth, and that's certainly not what you spoke about when I heard heard you talk.
0: Okay, so there's lots of um, different arguments we could take about the knowledge-rich curriculum approach. Um, you could take the the moral argument about the, the um, people we want to develop, the, the curiosity we want to develop in pupils, because we believe strongly that the more knowledge that we give, the more curious children are, the more fascinated they are by the world, and they go off. And then we, I've got one example of a, of a child who um, was studying the Amazon rainforest, and we were telling them lots and lots of information about the Amazon rainforest. And then every morning they came into school with a big sheet of paper saying, I've gone off, I've been, I've been learning about this, I've, I brought it in. And that really sparked his interest. And it, it wasn't that view that we did was it some sort of factory school experience where we we're just sort of programming these robots. The children were really fired up. So we want pupils to grow into people who are knowledgeable, but also fascinated and curious about the world. I mean, knowledge changes the way that you even see the world, I think. So mm. my, my dad is an example here. So my, my dad is, is a real knowledge on nature, on um, birds and plants and animals. And when I go on a walk with him, or just even sit in his back garden with him, he sees the world completely differently from me he hears things that I don't hear. He'll hear something and say, that's a specific bird. Or um, he'll see something on the ground and he'll, he'll say, oh, that's, that shows that a badger's been through here. And I don't see these things because that, that, I don't have that knowledge. I mean, he's trained me up quite well. You know, he, he perceives the world entirely differently from me and his, you know, I can imagine his brain kind of buzzing as, we, as he walks around the countryside and, and seeing all these things. And that's the same for anyone who has that knowledge. They, they see the world differently. You know, someone who is a very deep knowledge of history will be able to walk around um, a city like York and, and be able to see all the buildings and know so much about them and be buzzing with all of the information that they know and be fascinated by what they see. So I think knowledge helps you just perceive the world differently. It gives you that richness of life. But also there's the cognitive science arguments, which I think are really persuasive. Um, about how we learn and things like cognitive load theory and so on to me they they are really persuasive we want children to be clever then we need to teach them knowledge and we want them to be able to think then we need to teach them knowledge so I'm going to lean on um, a- another legend here that I've already mentioned Dylan William if you don't mind so I'm just going to read a little quote from from Dylan which which I, I always share at my curriculum training and I think it just it just hits the nail on the head perfectly for me so this is what what Dylan says the big mistake we've made in the United States and indeed in many other countries is to assume that if we want students to be able to think, then our curriculum should give students lots of practice in thinking. This is a mistake because what our students need is more to think with. The main purpose of curriculum is to build up the content of long term memory. So when students are asked to think, they're able to think in more powerful ways because what's in their long term memories makes their short term memories more powerful. And that's why curriculum matters. Now, to me, that absolutely hits the nail on the head that for years, I was under the impression that if we wanted to develop deep thinking skills, we, we had to practice that more. The, the, the route to success was just practice thinking more. But as Dylan says here, actually, what we need is more to think with. And I can refer this to um, a, a failed lesson. If you don't mind, I'll just indulge me for a moment. I will just I always like talking mm-hmm. about failed lessons. I think they, they tell you a lot. So... <laughs> I remember when I was teaching, we um, we were teaching a topic on uh, rainforests and we thought, me and my partner teacher thought it would be a really good way to kind of get the children interested and passionate and motivated about the topic. Um, near the start, we would have a debate about deforestation. We thought that would really like infuse uh, them about uh, about this topic. So in the lesson, I drew on the board a map and I didn't really know much about deforestation in, in the, the Amazon rainforest particularly, but I, but I had a go. And I drew this little map out and I said, oh, in this location here, there are um, some really rare plants and they're used to make medicines for us in, in the West. And over here, we've got some uh, rare animals. There's only a few of this species left. And, and down in this section, there's a tribe that have always lived in this rainforest. And, and this logging company is going to come along and they're going to chop down one of these areas. And we need to decide which area they're going to chop the trees down. So I handed out, I managed to find some little role play cards from a, um, a leading sort of a resource website and uh, mm-hmm. handed those out to the pupils. So someone was um, a Jaguar lived in the rainforest. Someone was a parrot. Someone was uh, a, a, someone from a tribe. Someone was the, the boss of the logging company. Some poor individual was mother nature. And I sort of said, right, let's have a debate. Uh, yeah. Tumbleweed, and then a few sort of more confident children would read out their little role play card, maybe embellish it a bit, but really sort of missed the point completely. So I was sort of leaping about at the front, trying to whip up some enthusiasm for this for this lesson. And I mean, obviously, it completely failed. Now I'm sure most of your listeners now are probably just thinking, "Well, that was the most stupid idea, and it's clearly not going to work." But at that time, that was the way that I thought that that if I could just sort of engage them and get them hooked into a topic, then that would lead to the further learning. So clearly what I needed to do was to actually teach them about ecosystems and and, and all sorts of economic factors around deforestation, and then that would have led to the debate. But even at the end of that lesson that had gone completely terribly, uh, the, the thing I thought was, well, that didn't go well, they're not very good at debating. I need to do more debating like if we just do more debating they'll get better at debating and 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 will have will have moved on with our learning and so a complete sort of misunderstanding of what i needed to do now like i say that that may just be me being an awful teacher but that that was the sort of thought process that i, I went through and it seemed logical to me so you know, if we go back to that dylan william quote if only i'd given them more to think with we might have actually had something worth discussing. But obviously, I didn't.
2: <laughs> Andrew, I think I'll safely say I've uh, delivered lessons but <laughs> I sat down afterwards and thought, yeah, that's about right. <laughs> So totally understand that one. Brilliant answer. Thank you for that. And one thing we do know that is designing a curriculum in itself is very difficult. And we, we've both been there. We're at different yeah. elements of the journey, really. And I know you've touched on it already, but your, your own reflection on your journey, how did you actually go about designing the curriculum i'm thinking who were the main people involved with this and building on that what has worked well and would you do anything different in hindsight because i know that ofsted have been releasing subject reviews recently which i know you found really interesting from looking on twitter and mm-hmm. the blogs but i wonder if you made any it's made you reconsider any of the decisions you've made in the past
0: Okay, so that's a, that's a big question. Hmm. Um, so you might, have to, you might have to come back to me with some of the points, but I'll, I'll sort of try to address some of them as we go through. So first of all, curriculum design for us was very messy. It wasn't a, a nice linear process following some really easy to follow flow chart of what we need to do first and what we need to do next and so on. And I think that's all right. I think what that meant was we've really grappled with some of the issues around it, and we've developed a real sort of sense of curriculum expertise in the school through doing that. Um, so, first of all, like it was messy, and so I'm not going to be able to tell you a very clear journey mm. of one thing we did, then another, then another. It went backwards and forwards many times. What we knew was that we needed to do groundwork first. We we couldn't just launch into writing this curriculum. We needed to make sure our um, subject leaders, our teachers, understood some of the basics. So we spent a lot of time talking about um, cognitive science and about memory and why that was important and how we could maybe begin to factor that into our curriculum design. We did some work on what uh, a knowledge-rich curriculum might look like in different subjects and all that sort of thing. So we did this bit of work first before we even launched into what we might do with our curriculum. But ultimately, at some point, you kind of just have to get your hands dirty, you have to get stuck in and actually start writing content. So I met with each subject leader for sort of an afternoon. And we we obviously looked at what we had already. And we were really cautious that we didn't just want to throw things out. We, we weren't saying our curriculum was uh, necessarily badly sequenced. We just hadn't taken advantage of, of the way that we might link this up. So we looked at what we had, we swapped some things around and so on. So this was at the sort of like the the overview stage. Then we talked about the, the concepts we wanted in the curriculum. And we went back to the, um, the national curriculum document, which we actually hadn't read properly, really, when we reflected on it. We'd been rushing to look at the content of the curriculum. You know, Can we still teach World War II? That sort of thinking. When we hadn't looked at the aims and the purpose of study and understanding each individual subject really well. So we went back to that and we said, well, what are the main concepts that we might want in our curriculum, the big ideas? And we also referred to subject experts and we we joined the subject associations and they were helpful and so on. So we, we came up with a bit of a list of concepts that we thought would um, run through our curriculum in each of those different sort of contexts that we were teaching. So then at that point, we went off and had a go at writing a unit. And, and the way we did it, is we were very clear that we wanted to set out the detail of the curriculum like as precisely as possible. And in fact, I'll just backtrack a little bit because... Before we we launched into this, we actually decided um, on five kind of guiding principles for our curriculum. So I'll just talk through those briefly now. So the first one of those was that obviously we wanted knowledge at the heart of it. We we knew that if we focused on knowledge, then we would have lots and lots of other positive benefits about the, the depth of thinking that children would have. We wanted to set the knowledge out in really fine detail, really meticulously write down Everything that we thought children should know in a particular unit of work, that was a real game changer because that enabled us to do all sorts of things in the curriculum, like being able to interrogate the curriculum documents so we can look through a document, we could search for particular terms, like we could, in the history curriculum, we can look for monarchy and we can see how often that comes up, in which context it comes up. And, you know, we can kind of, kind of see how that develops over time and, and have we got a strong development of that idea or, or can we add things in? So that setting out in fine detail was really key. We knew we wanted it remembered over the long term, which we've talked about that it had to be carefully sequenced over time. And we talked about what's the narrative of the curriculum, what's the story we tell from one unit to the next about uh, those individual subjects. And then the last one was that we wanted um, knowledge organised into subject disciplines because we knew that that was something that we'd been missing. Certain subjects didn't really have their own curriculum at that point. So subjects like art and design technology were basically add-ons to the humanities curriculum. So, you know, if we were doing a unit on coasts or something in geography, then for art, we might draw some seaside pictures. For design technology, we might sort of design a boat and make a boat and see if it floats. And, but they were decided by the teacher rather than a, a sort of a, an art leader or a design technology leader. So we wanted it organized into those subject disciplines and also that we took this knowledge from the discourse within the subject communities So that included the subject associations, but also just other teachers. You know, we wanted to make sure that when we were selecting this knowledge, we we were doing it from an informed point of view. So those are the five principles. So let's go back to this meeting where where we were sitting with the subject leaders. At the end of that meeting, after we'd thrashed out the overview of certainly the first draft, the main concepts, I showed them what I thought a unit might look like, the way we might write it, the sorts of things we might include. Um, The subject leader went off and wrote another unit and I wrote a unit too. And then we came back together like a week or two later and we looked at those. And then basically this is where it got messy because this is where we ended up going back to something we'd done before and said, actually, this concept we hadn't considered is kind of bubbling up to the surface here. And we hadn't considered that originally. So I think it was in history. We'd written some units uh, sort of on on British history and realised... We wanted to include something about trade, this idea of trade was coming through. We hadn't actually considered that. So th- this is why I describe it as messy, is that we were constantly adding and subtracting from, from the curriculum as we went through. So we made a few steps forward, we took a few steps back, and then we had to get sort of like get our hands dirty again and get stuck in. Now, like I say, that, that enabled us to really think deeply about this stuff and not sort of, really get to grips with it. So we managed to put together this first draft of the curriculum in that way, and we did that with lots of subjects kind of concurrently. and. One of the, I guess, another sort of mistake that I made initially was I thought this will be done in two years. We'll work on it for a year. We'll trial it for a year and then we're done. And over that time, through this process of writing these units, it just became so clear that actually this wasn't a job to get done. This was about building a culture of curriculum, that this is something we come back to. And even now, four or five years into this, On a weekly basis, subject leaders come to me to discuss whether something's in the right place, whether we need to add additional content to the curriculum or take out content. One of the examples of that is that because we um, wrote the curriculum out in such detail, it means that we're actually able to go back and make changes really easily to that, to the curriculum content. So a couple of years ago, one of our year six teachers came to me and said, I've just been doing a lesson about uh, World War Two and we were talking about political parties and a couple of the children in class looked really bemused and were asking why do they have parties when there's a war on but like, no like this is not the same party and that but that was their experience that they linked it to birthdays and celebrations and we they hadn't come across this term political party and this was in year six so what we'd have done in the past is sort of rolled our eyes and said oh, you know mm. typical <laughs> but now what we did was we, we went to the history leader and said our year six children don't really know about political parties. Is it in the curriculum anywhere? And obviously our full curriculum hasn't actually played out, obviously, for the full sort of number of years of the curriculum. But we realized it wasn't really emphasized that much. So we, we went back and we added in extra statements. So, you know, hopefully in a few years time, as children come through, that misconception won't be there. And it's that ability to do that in really precise detail that means that we'll never be done. You know, we'll, we'll always be developing this curriculum, but actually we've made it easy to do. And in terms of advice or, or tips, one of the things I would, I would say to people is keep it as simple as possible. Keep your documentation about the curriculum as simple as possible. I see on Twitter, social media, these amazing looking documents, these roadmaps, Um, all these things kind of like linking up loads of icons and all sorts of stuff. And I'm like, yes, it it looks great. And you could see a curriculum journey there. But I know that if I wanted to change something in my curriculum, it's mega easy for me to do. I can just go back to that original history document, geography document, whatever it is, and I can add something in. I don't have to change a hundred other documents and posters that we might have around school showing our journey. So I would say, keep it as simple as possible you use the simplest possible format for this curriculum because you want people to be able to be reflective and not feel disincentivized to change things. We, we want to evolve the curriculum, but if changing one thing means you have to go to seven different documents, then that's not going to work. You're not going to get that flexibility that you need. So, so I think that's really important. One of the other ideas we had around developing the curriculum was when we're thinking about assessment and progression in the curriculum, We took the idea that the curriculum is the progression model, which was an idea from a blog by a history teacher called Michael Fordham, uh, who worked very closely with Christine Council, who is obviously like a a real uh, knowledge on curriculum. And what what we understand by that is that as children learn the content of the curriculum, that's how we define the progress. So as they know more geography and more science and, and more in art, then that's that's how we define progress we don't have any particular um, stages or ladders that we might go through we would just say as they learn that new stuff then that's that's us showing that children are making progress so how do we assess whether children are making progress well we do that with quizzes which i've mentioned before so we do lots of quizzes during the unit Quick quizzes just to make sure children get that chance to retrieve previous knowledge from previous lessons. But then we do an end of unit test, which we try to do um, after, say, a half term holiday, so that children have that little bit of an opportunity just to forget, and then we then we want to find out what do they really remember. So we would do that quiz then, and then we have an, also an end of year. Bigger assessment where we would draw in all the different units of work that they've taught in a uh, that they've learned. Sorry, in a particular subject, and uh, then we would do this bigger quiz. So we, we have this this quizzing. So that's really checking that children have this knowledge and have learned the knowledge we want. But also we know that that's not. It's not just enough to know lots of facts. Clearly, we want those that information to be joined up and connected to each other in the form of a schema or however you want to describe it. So. We also have an end of unit outcome which might be something like an extended piece of writing and so we'd ask children to write um, an essay on a history unit for example or, or something about geography and that gives them the chance to sort of showcase their knowledge and their understanding of how everything links together. So it's not just about knowing, you know, a sort of a pub quiz curriculum that they can and recite various facts, but actually put it together into a sort of a coherent piece of writing. Or, you know, it might be in music, it might be a piece of music that they've composed or whatever, different units have different outcomes. But they have that chance to put it together and really show their understanding so that it's not just about this like crazy idea that it's somehow knowledge-rich is about rote learning facts and so on.
1: Great. And what do you make of these subject reviews that have been coming out from Ofsted?
0: I, I, I think they're really helpful. And, and I, I've been sending them out to our subject leaders. Uh, I was very pleased when our geography lead, I sent out the geography review. It was this huge review. And she just sent back um, a text message to I me. Mean, I think it was, it was like four words. It just says, yep, we do that. <laughs> <laughs> Always pleasing. Uh, okay, this is this is good. <laughs> um, and now clearly there's points to work on, but she, she was just broadly saying that, yes, yeah, actually, what, the way that we've developed the curriculum means that we've got lots of this in place already. I think those subject reviews helpful they can look a bit scary and daunting especially if you haven't really got stuck into curriculum development
1: yeah and I think you made a really lovely point earlier that I think I'd want people to kind of latch on to if they're at quite an early stage which is that it's really refreshing to hear from you that you're four or five years in but you still see this as a really work in progress mm-hmm. and the culture of curriculum development should be like that and I think that's really lovely because I think the impression a lot of people have, and perhaps it's a result of the old Ofsted framework, is I've got to have ticked X amount of boxes by the time Ofsted visit. And it's kind of knowing, look, you can get your good or your outstanding or whatever without everything being completely perfect. Just because there will be ongoing areas to develop doesn't mean that you can't kind of be in a strong position. And I certainly find that encouraging to think about because we're about two years in, two and a half years in, and I'm really proud of where we've got to, but I can still think, particularly as you're speaking, about a few other things that I wanted to tweak and develop a bit further. But it's kind of saying to myself that the weakness would be not being aware of it and not being willing to change it, where the strength is going I know that's the next step, and I've got a plan for it, and I think that's that's the key thing, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, so let's move on from curriculum as a whole, uh, Andrew, because one thing you've you've started to get a bit of a reputation for at Stanley Road is your Latin. Yeah. Uh, so many people might not realise that in primary schools we can we can teach a modern foreign language, or we can do an ancient language like Latin. So. I, I've started to have some conversations informally with colleagues about the potential maybe one day and you get a mixed reaction as I'm sure you have when you've spoken to people about it. Some people think it's absurd. <laughs> why is that any use for children in the modern world? Can you convince them otherwise? I'd love to hear about why you do Latin.
0: We were teaching Spanish as our subject in school and we had done for a number of years, but we didn't have any expertise in this subject particularly. And um, we had, a, we had a, a scheme of work that we would just follow that we bought and Because teachers weren't confident with it, it was really um, a subject that was neglected um, and it just sort of ticked along. And I think by the end of year six, they probably they could count to 10 and say hello. And and they probably did that every year. So it wasn't um, a subject that had a high profile in school. As we began developing the curriculum, we put a real emphasis in the curriculum on vocabulary, you know, going back to that dreaded SATS paper, we knew vocabulary was so key. And so we were writing into the curriculum all the vocabulary that we wanted pupils to know. And we were writing definitions of those so that uh, the teachers had that subject knowledge in a very precise way. Uh, And we also included, uh, for some of that vocabulary, the word roots and so on and and, what the etymology of those words was. And it just sort of of dawned on uh, us that actually perhaps we could do something with that more interesting. And, And when we asked staff, we found out we had two teachers who had GCSE Latin who were teaching in Upper Key Stage 2. Myself and um, the, our other deputy head teacher had both done Latin at high school, and we all had really positive experience of it and said how, how great it was for helping you get a good grasp of grammar systems and obviously, again, the etymology and vocabulary. So we thought, well, perhaps we should do this. And we were also conscious that when our children went to secondary school, They go to a number of different secondary schools and they they taught a number of different languages when they arrived in year seven. So they weren't necessarily carrying on with Spanish. Uh, In some cases, we were also aware that what happened was they just started it from scratch with Spanish because, you know, uh, perfectly understandable that secondaries have you know no idea what's going on in in primaries and they're taking children from lots of different schools. So you are going to inevitably have to start from scratch. So we thought, well, we're not really going to lose anything if we lose our Spanish teaching, we didn't think. Uh, And we can see so much to gain from uh, introducing Latin. So we got in touch with Classics for All, who are a charity who support the the teaching of Latin in schools, and and they were brilliant. We applied for a grant, which we used to fund training on the very specific schemes of work that we were actually going to be introducing in school. So the training was, was high quality because it was matched directly to what we were going to be teaching and it also enabled us to buy some of the textbooks that we wanted to support Latin teaching, and that relationship with Classics for All has been brilliant because they they give us ongoing support year on year with anything that we need. It's been we couldn't have done it without them. Now I'm always cautious about talking about uh, Latin because I know some people make sort of the, these wild claims that it, it will make you more a more logical person or, or a more critical thinker if you develop your understanding of Latin, and I'm always wary about this sort of like transferring these these skills across domains but for us in terms of the, the impact, sort of to put it in a very simple way, our children know quite a bit of Latin now. Yeah. And, and we actually think that's really useful. Mm. And I've got lots of little anecdotes over the over the two years we've been doing it where the, the knowledge of Latin has supported their work in English. So I remember they were reading Kenzuki's Kingdom in, in one of the classes and the word laboriously came up. And they actually said, oh, that means to work, because we did that in Latin a few weeks mm. ago. Mm. And, and they managed to work out what that word meant. We we love it. We, we think it really enriches our curriculum. It's, it fits so well with our focus on vocabulary and, and knowledge. It's a brilliant way as well to recap um, learning from the, our unit in year three on Romans. So we're big fans of it and we've supported quite a lot of schools in, in getting set up. With Latin teaching, we just see lots of positives from it.
1: Can I just ask you a couple of small things before Steve also comes in on this one? First of all, what, what year do you begin Latin in? Is that in year one?
0: No. So we teach an intensive program in year five and six, and that's our languages curriculum. So that means we thought really long and hard about this, but we decided that if we, if we, waited to begin teaching languages until year five and six, it means we can really focus in year three and four on making sure things like the children are all able to read at a very high level. We, we wanted to free up a little bit of space. We also do a lot of our teaching about um, history in year three and four, and we wanted to give that more, more time and space too. So we hold off on our languages curriculum until year five, and then we do an hour a week every week, and they get a really good understanding of Latin.
1: That's really helpful. And am I also right that you are about to move to Sounds Right as a school as well, or you're dabbling with Sounds Right potentially as you That's right, yeah.
0: We're, our teachers are doing the Sounds Right training as we speak, and uh, we're launching that in September, which we're really uh, excited about.
1: Which is the reason why I'm potentially interested in Latin is from that mm. angle, which is that yeah. Sounds Right, once it goes into Key Stage 2, is very much about etymology and morphology. So I think... For you, it will be a dream—a dream combination.
2: Absolutely, mm, I was actually thinking that, Russell, as um, we're talking about Latin and how it does merge really nicely with the etymology and the the sounds right approach to yeah. phonics. So, really interesting point. I think that can resonate with quite a lot of people actually. Um, now, a final point, Andrew, is not specifically on curriculum because one thing that many people have been inspired by is your blog about whole class feedback. It seems that more schools are exploring this idea, uh, but can you talk us through why you moved to this approach, how you introduced it, because I think that's really important to get people behind it, and what has been the impacts of this? We've
0: been uh, using a kind of whole class feedback approach for uh, about four years now, and at the time we were looking at our marking policy, and, and written marking in particular, and We were sort of beginning to realize that we built it up into this thing that actually it it wasn't doing as much as we thought it was. So for written marking to work, you have to have so many factors come together all at the same time for it to be successful. So the child has to be able to read your handwriting for a start. So that's that's one thing that could get in the way. They then have to understand what you've written. They then have to understand how to act on that. Uh, They then have to be motivated enough to actually act on it and do it. So you've got all these things. Like all these planets have to align, and then if we're really lucky, that written marking might have some impact. And so we we were aware of that. We knew that our marking policy was sort of more compliance based, um, because we you know we'd read all these reports that feedback's important, and we conflated feedback with marking you know we thought that well feedback that's what's a visible way of showing that well that's written marking so we'd better do that really really well uh, because we need to evidence this and and show some i don't know some person some imaginary person that we're 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 acting on (laughs) this. and so you know we had like two stars and a wish policy which is very common but you know teacher would say they couldn't think of two stars and a wish sometimes sometimes there were, there were no stars, just lots and lots of wishes, you know, or the opposite. Sometimes it was, there was nothing really to say further about it. Or Certainly not at that point. And of course, the other thing is the, the, just the onerous nature of written marking, the amount of time teachers spend on it, which stops them from doing other things. And this is the point I always make in the training is that I'm not sort of here to criticize written marking and say that that's, it's not an effective way of doing it, but it's what I would say is it's not an efficient way of marking because it takes such a long time. You know, We've all had that experience where we spent an hour marking children's books. We hand them out. We say, respond to your marking. And within 30 seconds, your class has said, I've done it. Like, okay, that took me an hour. And you've just sort of dealt with it in 30 seconds. <laughs> or you have 10 hands up saying, I don't know what you want me to do. What does this mean? So you end up doing verbal feedback anyway. So we weren't happy with that. And we were hearing about schools who were beginning to introduce these sorts of policies and Michaela was one of those schools I remember reading the blogs by Joe Kirby on this and really being inspired so we we came up with a sort of a system for whole class feedback so let's describe that briefly so in a nutshell at the end of a lesson or during the lesson the teachers walking around looking at books and beginning to identify misconceptions or things that have gone really well but also things that the children are not grasping and at the end of the lesson, the teacher will begin to look through the books. And we just ask teachers to tick the book so that we can see it's been marked. So they know they've looked at that book as well. But that's the only thing we actually ask them to do in the books. Now, sometimes teachers write comments if they think it's worth doing. But on the whole, they don't because they know that there's a more efficient way to do it. And we do stickers and things like that. So children still get that positive feedback. So teachers look through those books and begin to think, right, what are the main misconceptions here or the things I really need to draw out In my future teaching, they'll make notes in our feedback book. So each teacher has um, a book called a feedback book, and they make notes on their lessons in there. Children who found it difficult, children who did particularly well, those common misconceptions, etc. And then the next lesson, typically doesn't always happen this way, but typically the lesson would start with a feedback session where they, instead of them having written all that stuff in the books, they will just they will feedback to the class instead the sorts of comments they would have written in the books. And that follows a rough structure. And I'm always really cautious about it because we, we really don't have it set in stone. You have to follow a certain sequence. But we, well, certainly when we first started out, we suggested that teachers followed this kind of very simple structure, which was we start out with showing the best work. We, sort of, we call it exemplifying excellence. We might put that under a visualizer or just read it out to the class or whatever, but talk about what was really good, what, what, who performed really well, who did great pieces of work. Then we might move into some of the um, more basic knowledge gaps that children might have, which could be spellings or um, number bonds or times tables in maths. So maybe it wasn't the focus of the lesson, but we, it's cropped up that actually we don't know these things. And so typically if it's English and we're doing some writing, there might be some spellings that are commonly misspelled across the class. The teachers will do some, a quick bit of work, perhaps on mini whiteboards, uh, children practice writing it and then they'll go back to their work perhaps and check to see how they got on did they spell that correctly and then they might edit it there and then we are always cautious though that these sessions are not about improving work necessarily that children done, but about improving the children's knowledge you know sometimes it's appropriate to go back and edit your work but if you're just doing it to improve a piece of work then that may not be actually what you're actually your ultimate aim is to improve the student mm. and improve the knowledge and, and, and their uh, what they understand. Mm. So we deal with those basic knowledge gaps and then we might move into a bit of a longer session where we look at the common misconceptions that children might have had. Again, if we look think of a writing lesson, perhaps, if there was a problem with tenses jumping about, which is a common problem in our school with many of our children have English as an additional language, and they often get muddled about tenses. So it might be that tenses jumped about, the teacher might do some modeling on the board and say, look, this is a common problem here. And they might either look at a piece of text that the teacher prepared and go through it and try and spot the errors, or they might go back to their own work and see if they can identify errors that way. So we do a little bit more teaching. And it's a very sort of interactive, fast-paced session. But it, it gives the children that feedback without us having to write it down. Now, if children need individual feedback, they still get it. Mm. Uh, I mean, it's impossible to teach without giving feedback. Anyway, I'd love to see a lesson where you didn't give feedback. Like, how, What would that even look like? Mm. It's, it's not possible. So we already give lots of feedback. Uh, and some children who need individual feedback might have a quick chat with a teacher or a teaching assistant, maybe before the lesson, after the lesson, during the lesson, whatever. But there's still that capacity to do that individual feedback. But on the whole, we we recognize that talking to children is actually a really good way to give feedback. It sounds really flippant, but if a child misbehaves at dinner time, we don't write a comment for them to read. (laughs) We just tell them. Because that's, that's, the, that's the more effective way of giving feedback. So why would it be different with, with uh, English or maths or whatever? Mm. One of the interesting things we found, I'm probably going a bit off point here, but one of the interesting things we found was that actually maths feedback was quite different from English feedback. And actually, often the maths feedback will just be the teacher saying, I've looked at your books and we all need to practice this sort of question again. So here's five more, off you go. And that's the feedback. We're adapting our teaching, mm. uh, or it may be even that we adapt our curriculum over time and decide that actually we need to change what we're doing in a few weeks time or we need to change what we did previously. So uh, let's get back to the implementation of it. What we did, we we realized we wanted to move to this approach. Now, instead of just launching that whole school, we had some of our middle leaders trial this for uh, half a term and we were, we were trying to iron out any wrinkles and we met with those uh, middle leaders every week for that half term just to discuss how it was going, what we needed to change, what we'd learned from doing it. Now, very early on, I remember a meeting really vividly where those teachers said, we are better teachers now. Like This, this had transformed the way they taught. They felt they were actually doing a better job in the classroom because they weren't spending hours and hours marking and then having no time to think about what they were going to do about it. They had much more time to discuss with their colleagues what they were going to do in the in the next lesson and just reflect on what what had happened in that lesson and how they needed to move on with it. So they they you know, sort of collectively said this is this has made us better teachers. So we trialed that for six weeks. We we did lots of tweaks here and there and basically then rolled that out with the staff and more or less. It's been running like that for four years or so. We haven't made any significant changes and it just really works for us. I always, when I do training on this, I always have a slide and it just says in big letters, no harm was done. And it felt like the world might end when we tried this, but it didn't. And children carried on learning. They carried on producing really high standard of work. And there were lots of other happy kind of byproducts as a result of this that we hadn't actually planned for. So one of those was, as I'm English lead, and um, I've always been trying to get teachers to read children's literature. I think it's so important that they can sort of recommend text to children. But for years, people just say, well, you know, when am I going to do this? You know, I just don't have time for this. Well, we, I know there's a group of teachers in school who read all the latest children's literature. They swap between them. They discuss it. Fantastic! Um, last week, one of our teachers told me about something that was happening, which which is called Sunday Book Club, which I was unaware of. Um, and Sunday Book Club is a group of teachers read an education book, uh, and then they all zoom each other on a Sunday night to talk about it. And they they just finished Teach Like a Champion, Doug Lamov. But this is amazing. Yeah, <laughs> this is brilliant, and this is, in my opinion, not having those reams of of marking to get through. It meant also that that curriculum work that I've described, that was more able to happen because teachers had that little bit of extra time. So although we've cut down marking, our teachers still work incredibly hard, but they're working hard on different things and things that we think actually have more impact um, than that trawling through books and feeling that obligation to write long comments. and, And then that crazy thing, which we used to do where children would respond and then you'd respond to that response and then the <laughs> child would respond And like you basically just keep going till there was no paper left on your page <laughs>
2: that's
1: crazy. yeah I think uh, that that's such a brilliant um, sales pitch for why whole cast feedback is the way forward I think you know and uh, what you said about trialing it in a couple of year groups I mean that's a a really helpful common sense model for anything you're thinking about changing but you know you probably would need to tweak if you suddenly made everyone do it straight away we did exactly the same after talking to you you know tried it in key stage one tried it in key stage two how's it look different with a six-year-old than it does with an eight-year-old or a 10-year-old yeah it's it's such an easy way and then when you come to share that with the wider staff you've got at least two people singing its praises talking about how it works in the class and practically and it's not just coming from a a senior leader that's not doing as much teaching so yeah it makes so much sense doesn't it we're really grateful that you joined us for a chat. And I think people will have taken a huge amount from this conversation. Uh, we'd love it if people would leave us a wonderful five star review for our podcast, if you enjoy it, and and subscribe, and then you don't miss brilliant episodes like this. Uh, I know you can find Andrew on Twitter at primary Percival. And uh, we definitely recommend you follow him for regular insights about curriculum design and other lovely things. Andrew, thank you so much for your time today. Thank
0: you so much for inviting me. I know you've asked me before, and I was really nervous about coming and doing a podcast, but I've really enjoyed uh, the hour we've spent. So thank you very much.
2: It's been amazing, Andrew. Thank you so much. So much insight in there. Thank you. Don't shoot the deputies.